From the city side, you know, there are so many incredible initiatives going on right now with all the tactical changes and, and slow streets initiatives. I think my my big question to a lot of those to a lot of those cities and people who are working on them is how is the city learning from that experience? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. In this episode, you'll meet Meredith Glazer, a PhD doctoral candidate at the University of Amsterdam and a researcher within their Urban Cycling Institute. She recently published a couple of fascinating articles, which we'll address and you can access in the show notes. But we'll also talk a bit about her transition and assimilation over the past decade as a California native now living in the Netherlands. But before we dive into that discussion, I must mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the super generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. As is frequently the case with most small nonprofits, please know that any donation is greatly appreciated and every little bit adds up. To learn how you too can make a huge difference in helping me produce this content by making a tax-deductible gift, becoming a corporate sponsor, or joining our monthly Patreon program, please head over to our website at activetowns, that's plural, .org and simply click on that donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included the appropriate links in the show notes. One last thing before we get started, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcatcher platform of choice. And also as a reminder, some of our episodes include a video component and you can find that on the Active Towns YouTube channel. Okay, time to get this episode with Meredith Glazer rolling. Meredith, welcome to the Active Towns Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First off, I want to thank you so much for doing this, taking time out of your busy, busy day to chat with me here today. I know it's like late afternoon, early evening for you there in Amsterdam, while it's early morning here for me in, in Austin, Texas. Uh, how are things going in the, in the Netherlands? Is it starting to feel like fall yet? Definitely. Yeah. The summer, the summer is gone. We had a heat wave at the end of the summer, but now it's back to cloud and rain. And, um, but uh, on the upside, I mean, life is going back to kind of normal considering, you know, the crazy abnormalities that COVID has presented with us. Yeah. So it's, it's actually looking quite positive. Cool. That's great. And I know like last summer was a really, really hot and brutal summer. W was this summer a little more normal? I don't know. It feels like normal is such a, such a broad range. even. Right. So, but yeah, we had a pretty intense two to three week heat wave at the, in uh, the beginning of August where we were camping uh, with our whole family, you know, in a tent with 90 degrees plus. So it was, uh, it was hot, but you know, the, the heat is a welcome is welcome after such a long winters here. Cause the winters are, you know, six months long and dark and cold and snowy and wet. So yeah, we just have to think about that in our minds while we're, while we're really hot and sweaty, you just think, okay, this is better than the winter. <laughs> Why don't you share a little bit about yourself? How did you end up studying in Amsterdam and, you know, becoming a researcher there at the University of Amsterdam? Well, it's it's kind of a long-winded story, but if I if I sort of break it down into, you know, the nutshell of it, my partner and I wanted a, a change of scenery uh, in California. We we're we're both from California and we were interested in going to a place that uh, offers, you know, a lot of uh, English language as a, as a possibility to live and work and, and play. 
And he at the time wanted to do a master's in business. And I was just finishing my studies at UC Berkeley. So uh, it was sort of the uh, this like window of opportunity, like, okay, let's go somewhere for one year. And that was 10 years ago. So we, we centered in on the Netherlands as a great place where you know, English is, is often spoken. We both have some ties to the Netherlands from family histories. And then, you know, in my research on, on, uh, on well, sustainability and public health and the built environment, the Netherlands also is often prized as this sort of gem, you know, in the world that they've somehow gotten it right. So for me, that was a really great opportunity to sort of to live in this place. Like, well, what, what is it about this place that has gotten it gotten it so right. And so, yeah, so when we moved, it was just the idea to to be here for a year. But uh, I found a, a position with an urban planning firm quite, quite quickly. And, um, and then that sort of, you know, dominoed into other opportunities. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, now it's been 10 years. And I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's one of these things where you never really plan, but it sort of falls into your lap. And, and then, and then things, life just happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and now this makes a lot more sense, your comments about winter and, you know, <laughs> coming from California, it was the Bay Area. So yeah. It's, yeah. that's a pretty mild climate. It's not like you get winter in, in, San, in the San Francisco Bay Area. No, no. I mean, I'm a California girl at heart. So the winters here were quite shocking. And I think that the year that we had moved here was the coldest winter in 50 years. And I remember dragging our suitcases over, you know, over a foot of snow uh, into our first hotel and and thinking, oh, man, did I did we make the right decision here? <laughs> but, you know, the Netherlands is a really uh, it's a really great place to live. And we, we now have two children and it's just it's been a really wonderful experience uh, starting a family in this in this uh, in this place and in this city. But of course, you know, it, there's also the drawbacks. We miss family and friends. Um, we miss miss definitely bits and pieces of of American and Californian culture that we just obviously can't find here in a in a in a foreign uh, foreign place. So there's drawbacks, but also a lot of benefits. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dive in uh, to your your recent uh, research paper that you you published. Uh, that was the the thing that prompted me and to reach out to you last week. And I know you also uh, had a commentary or a viewpoint published as well. And we'll we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that one too. But mm-hmm. before we do that, let's stick with you know this so, sort of cultural shift that you sort of <laughs> the yeah. two of you you know thrust upon yourselves. And and after a decade now, it's it may be hard to sort of remember what that that shift was like. But but let's talk about some of the you know, some of those things that just, you know, you had to adjust to. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. biggest things is just life by bicycle. Uh, talk a little mm-hmm. bit about some of those cultural shifts. Yeah, I mean, life life here is, I mean, on one hand, uh, it just becomes very, you know, the new normal. It, it just becomes normal uh, the way that the most of the Dutch here live and and how and how we we sort of, you know, immersed into that living. And I've, I've read some books on what's called, you know, the expat, right? The, the expatriate, or I guess like a Western immigrant or something that, you know, you, you come to a new place and you sort of are in this honeymoon phase for a long time. And for me, that honeymoon phase was really attached to the, to the bicycle. And I, you know, I just loved my secondhand Oma feats, you know, that had the, it's this, you know, an old grandmother bike that, you know, not having, have any gears and had backpedal brakes and a huge basket in the front. And, and yeah, I mean, going, living in close to the city center, um, you, it's very easy to just have a life that is, that the only way you move around is, is by bike. It's of course very easy to walk around as well because the environments here, this, the urban environments are, you know, these very small kind of sections of, of neighborhoods, uh, just like in any other city where you have all your amenities within a five to 10 minute walk. But the bicycle does open up a whole new world of the city where, you know, you can go to all the museums and can explore every single train station in, in Amsterdam. You can, 
bike to the train, you can leave your bike there and then you can get on the train and go to Delft or Utrecht. So it really opens up a, a whole new world. And I think that's what was that I really, you know, was sort of enthralled with when I when I arrived. Yeah. And as time went by, it, it sounds like it, it just becomes this natural second nature that active mobility is just what you do because that's what everybody else is doing. Is that a, a good assessment of that? Well, I would say, you know, the built environment is built, right? So it's designed in a way. And it's funny you say natural because, you know, there's a lot of people who say that there is nothing natural about the Dutch environment, right? It is planned, it is mastered, it is manipulated to a T. So, I mean, even when you go into the Dutch forest, you know, with the Amsterdam forest, which is, which is kind of nearby, you see all these trees in one line and you think, is this a forest or did someone actually design this forest? And that same, that, that very same logic is applied to, you know, the streets and the buildings and everything in between in, in, uh, in Dutch cities and also in the countryside, you know, the, they have limitations on development. So even, you know, the polders and where the, all the vegetables are grown, like, you know, it's very, very much planned. Um, we don't want, you know, any sort of holes in the dikes to, to then drown us all. And I think as I speak, I am probably at least a couple meters below sea level, you know, my house. So, you know, in the urban area, something like um, a couple million people at least live below sea level. And that is because of the great, amazing civil engineering projects that occurred decades ago to, you know, to, to hold back the water. Yeah, so when we look at the the environment, it's it's really because of this fine-tuned design that leads many people to to walk and take the bike. That coupled with, you know, intense mixed use and and pretty moderate density like throughout the city. So, yeah, I mean everybody, quote unquote everybody, right? I mean everything is different in different parts of the in different parts of cities, but at least in my neighborhood, moderate density we have mixed uh, mixed use we have the ground floor of the of the buildings um, are often you know um, amenities like grocery or doctors you know dentists daycare you know these types of uses that are in the ground floor so it's also you know very easy to live in this environment where you know everything is within a, a five ten minute walk or, or a five ten minute bike ride yeah. So because it's so well planned and so safe and inviting from that built environment, that active mobility is a natural choice. It's like, oh, yeah, the, it, it, it does feel it doesn't seem like you're doing something supernatural or or fringe like, you know, somebody who is going out of their way to ride a bicycle in a North American city not designed for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to some extent, I agree. However, I also was an agent in that decision, right? I mean, I decided to live in this particular neighborhood, whereas other people do not have that choice. So, you know, or they make a different decision based on other circumstances. So there's a lot of other expats who, for example, get a car with their contract, and then a different choice is made because, you know, well, parking is very difficult in this neighborhood. It's expensive. Uh, there's a waiting list to be able to park on the street. You don't have your own garage. And so then, you know, the choice is made to, poss to live in another neighborhood where it's easier to park, where you have free parking or something like that. So, I mean, I mean, there's I'm just bringing up like how it's, you know, it, it is I think it's more complex than just saying like, yes, the whole environment of the Netherlands is um, deliberately offering this this sort of active environment, but you know we are agents in that choice as individuals. And there's a whole bunch of other interesting, complex factors too, like the social services. So, for example, that that's sort of this this uh, top down aspect of also encouraging active lifestyles. So, one example is that with my children. I have to register my in order to get the government subsidy for childcare or education, you know, benefits. I have to register my child with it to uh, at a daycare within a kilometer or two kilometers of my house. 
Um, and the same goes for school and the same goes for doctors. So the social services then are also very tied to where you live. And I think this is another interesting aspect that I definitely did not experience in California as a, as an American, you know, like I remember being driven to school long, you know, longer distances. And if I had to go to the doctor, it was all the way across town, you know? So uh, it, that's a very different situation here where there is this sort of imposition from the government that, you know, hey, if you need to go to the doctor, you need to be close to your home. If you want to take your kid to school, we give you these choices, but they are within this moderate distance of your home. So I think that also is, is a huge factor. I don't know to what extent the factor is, but at least I think it is a factor for us um, who, you know, I mean, we don't have a car, so that's also uh, a difference too. We don't have that option. But I can say that it's having only having the bicycle as an option also sort of, I don't want to use the word pigeon, but it's sort of like, like it formulates your choices. <laughs> so I, on rainy days, for example, I get on my rain gear and because I don't even know how, how to get, uh, how to use the tram system in, <laughs> in Amsterdam. I don't know how to get to the office by tram. So I'm just going to put on my rain suit and get wet. <laughs> Yeah, and you, you said a couple things there that I want to amplify and, and and drill down on is is that you're absolutely right. Not all areas of the Netherlands are as intense as Amsterdam, and uh, and in fact, in 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 some of the cities in the in the south of of the country, uh, you know, it's it's even less oriented towards you know the bicycle. Relatively speaking, compared to a North American city, they're they're a bicycle utopia. But so it's it's it, it, there's no comparison there. But one of the things that you just mentioned there, in terms of the tram system, and not really sure, you know, what you would need to do to be able to to get you know to your destination, is the fact that there's like duplication of systems. And so, for for instance, your ability to get to, like, say, Utrecht or whatever, is a multimodal, you know, comfortable trip where you're riding your bike to the train station, jumping on the train, and then being able to get to, you know, that destination. And so you, you, there's these, there's multiple options, you know, in, in terms of, you know, being able to get there. But uh, your trip, how, how, how long is your trip you know, for you to get from home to, uh, to your office? 12 minutes by bike. Okay, 12 minutes by bike. And yeah. approximately what's that in distance? Um, it's about three kilometers. So okay. you know, nearly, I guess, yeah, a mile and a half or so. Yeah. And as you mentioned, that was very, you know, you, you made choices that you know positioned yourself there but you could have easily made a different choice and you could have made a choice that was positioned you say 10 kilometers you know six miles outside of uh, of that area in which case the the your mobility choices would have been slightly different maybe there would have been a public transit and bike ride you know walking combination but because you're so close that's your logical choice. And because it's so safe and inviting for you to do, choose that choice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I can bring another example too. My husband rides his bike, well, in normal working conditions. He rides his bike to our nearest train station, uh, which is a, a five minute bike ride. And then he parks his bicycle in one of the 5,000 spot bicycle parking garage. <laughs> and and then he goes on the train for about 35 minutes, gets off the train, and then he has another bike, um, a very old, dilapidated, rusty bike at the train station um, at his destination. And then he rides the, the rest, the other five minutes to the office with that bike and then reverses it on the way home. So, um, and that's also a very common approach. Uh, I mean, about 50% of all pa train passengers in the Netherlands come to the station by bike. So we know that there is there is this very special relationship between mass transit and uh, and and the and the bicycle that they can they can you know they can really augment each other. 
And I think that's a that's a huge lesson. I mean, we'll talk about lessons, you know, later, but that's a huge lesson, I think, for the American context is this combination of the bike plus mass transit. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, the transit system is very much invested in that. Uh, as you mentioned, the the fabulous bike parking structures that are being uh, constructed there. And so, uh, so folks uh, from North America, if you're wondering what we're talking about, this is like a high-end parking garage. <laughs> and, and some of them even, even have, you know, wonderful services. You can, if your, you know, bike needs a tune-up or whatever, some of them have that ability. Uh, but the other thing that the transit uh, authority is also doing is is they are also investing in shared bike systems. So they have the Ove Feats system there, so that if you didn't have a bike at the end of your your trip, maybe you're going to a city that you don't wouldn't have a bike there. You know, you have the opportunity to check out an Ove Feats and and be able to cycle off to your your destination if it's too far for you to walk to your destination. Yeah, or you just want the flexibility, right? I mean, a lot of people just really want the flexibility. They don't want to be bound by uh, a tram system they don't necessarily know and tram stops and tram timetables or or other train timetables or bus timetables. So it's, yeah, I think the the flexibility the bike offers, especially if you're going to multiple destinations or, you know, you have multiple meetings or visits with friends, then, then the bicycle really offers you that flexibility and you know the, the the Dutch are also sort of innovating in this in this shared mobility platform too, using people's bicycles who uh, who are just who who are at the train station. So or which are at the train station. So if somebody, if say my husband again goes to the train station and leaves his bicycle there, if he signed up with this program, he could have a Bluetooth lock attached to his bicycle, and then somebody arriving at the same train station could unlock his bike and use it for the day and bring it back. So they're also experimenting with different ways to, uh, uh, quote unquote, solve the bike parking problem. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a problem that every city in the world, I think, wants. But uh, but the Dutch have uh, are looking for new ways to uh, to innovate in that uh, arena. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So sticking with our, our, our theme of active living and active mobility and, and all of that, let's talk a little bit about health. And, you know, we, we know that that's one of the biggest challenges we have in North America is that physical inactivity has been compromising our, our health and well-being. Uh, physical inactivity is one of the primary risk factors for almost all of our chronic diseases that we're, we're faced with. Talk a little bit about, you know, that shift for, for you as a couple and you as a family to, to be sort of in this environment where you get this low level, moderate, continuous activity and how that's impacted your health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, I don't have like data to back up my my uh, my own, you know, health. But uh, but I think one of the, you know, just off the top of my head, one of one of the maybe more maybe under focused areas of this is the, is the community health aspect, right? And the well-being, this this subjective well-being that when, you know, when we commute by bike, we are also being exposed to so many different types of not only people uh, and backgrounds, but also different types of environments, different smells, the fresh air. And, and we still don't know, I think, in, in speaking for public health research, we don't know a lot about how that influences our objective health. So I think that would be one area that would be really interesting to look at, um, especially in an environment like Amsterdam, where, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, people are, are biking a lot more, but they're also having interactions with their children on their bike. And, you know, these really cozy heart melting moments at a stoplight, where I can give my daughter a kiss, because she's right in front of me sitting on the bike seat, those, you know, those, those really touching moments, I think, can influence our health and well-being 
beyond what people really know right now. So, you know, maybe that's not contributing to, you know, fewer colds or, uh, or, you know, preventing uh, uh, onset of Corona symptoms, but, you know, it's giving me this, this deeper connection to my children. It's giving me a deeper connection to my environment in ways that I think are very, very meaningful and also build, you know, a, a social cohesion and social capital. You know, even if it's, you know, you're sitting next, you're on your bicycles next to someone who looks very unfamiliar to you, you know, how does that influence you as a person to, to see that, hey, huh, there's somebody who's very different from me on a bicycle too. You know, that's sort of like urban democracy and, and yeah, and just, just relating to other people, uh, I think is something that America really needs right now, you know, is, is that being able to, to see everybody in, in a, in a, in a compassionate, compassionate way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate your, your comments about, you know, the, you know, that ability to like, say, have that intimate moment with your daughter on the bicycle and, and how important that is. Uh, but, and, and to your, also to your point is, you know, the social cohesion aspect of it, of being next to somebody who may be expressing the, those feelings, you know, that we know that oxytocin levels, you know, do increase. And we know that, you know, there's this binding that takes place. We also know that we just went through a bit of an experiment. We just went through a period of time where you all had to 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 lock down and you you know do what you could to stop the spread of coronavirus. And so you probably had a little bit of that, you know, that experience of having the inability to be able to connect publicly and socially in that way. Describe a little bit of that because that was, you, you actually did do a little mini experiment, maybe not specifically collecting data, but you know, it was empirical nonetheless. Yeah, well, there, we can, man, we can have a whole nother episode about, about this, but it's, it's a really interesting natural experiment that a lot of cities undertook during Corona is opening up their streets to people walking and biking, biking and, you know, doing any other activities actively in order to, you know, not only facilitate a, a physical activity, but also for mental activity. I know that a, a lot of cities are, are really promoting that their, you know, that their slow streets program or these tactical changes that they've made to their city streets are, are for the benefit of people's mental health. And, um, and I think that's, that's a, that's a great intersection to link to, you know, our streets, our streets being this public asset that have more meaning than just moving people and goods, right? There's, there's an aspect of having a having men mental well-being, subjective well-being, the social community component that I think has been undervalued a lot. I don't know if that answered your question. I don't know if you wanted more like from a personal on a on a personal level or. Um... Yeah, I mean, if you want to if you want to talk about that, I mean, it, it must have been especially in the early days of when the the order was really look, stay at home, <laughs> take this seriously, don't get out. And I know that many cities sort of had that that phase one of look, you know, only go out if you absolutely have to, and then and then as as people started, you know, venturing out more for mental health reasons primarily and physical health reasons primarily, then there was that pressure on needing to create additional space. But yeah, what, what did it sort of feel like, you know, because you just mentioned, you know, how you, there's this social cohesion that normally is taking place out there on the streets and then suddenly it was gone. Yeah, well, I think that's the interesting uh, part with, you know, with, with uh, a city like Amsterdam that has dedicated so much effort to building and maintaining cycling infrastructure and, and space, public space public parks, I mean, all these these access to active uh, places that even throughout lockdown, well, first of all, in Amsterdam, it was, it was also a different case because we were never, unless you had symptoms, um, you had to stay home, you know, you, you didn't have to stay home. So it was there for our family, we, we never felt like totally 
lockdown, like like right. in uh, many communities in America. So, um, so we still had the freedom to 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 go out, to walk, um, and to bike. And for the most part, we always had our bikes still. So I think that was one of the one of the great a great benefit of this uh, of this city was you know without the tourists there we could go uh, we took our bikes we would we would go to all the the monuments all the canals all the historic places that usually is just overrun with tourists and even as you know non dutch residents feel like is off limits because it's just so crowded and these spaces were just open and uh, and empty so it was a really kind of wonderful uh, unique experience to to have and 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 we were you know we were still biking so so yeah i mean it was uh, it was probably unique compared to the american experience that's still going on When we return after this quick break, Meredith and I discuss her two recent published papers. We talk more broadly about her research into study tours to the Netherlands, and she reflects upon potential transformative strategies for advocates and community leaders. But first, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help me grow our audience and this movement to create more activity-promoting places by telling a friend or two. Thank you. Okay, let's get back to our discussion with Meredith Glazer. The viewpoint that that what you published is accelerating reform to govern streets in support of human scale accessibility. Was that tied to and related to what was observed uh, during the pandemic? No, that was actually an ongoing project since our uh, uh, paper since December of, of ah, last okay. year. So sort of came, yeah, in, in between. But where we just my co-authors and I, we, we wanted to just put something out there, you know, and, and I think in academic research, you know, the, the timeline can just be so long from when you start a research project to when you collect data and, and analyze it and then write it up and then go through peer review. We wanted to just put a commentary out. We acknowledge we are not experts on governance. We're not, you know, we're not like scholars in that particular field, but we wanted to draw connections from a number of studies that have taken place and also just current recent events and put something out there. I think it also has some relevance for, yeah, for sort of the COVID discussion. But what we what we wanted to succinctly summarize was, you know, essentially there's in a U.S. context, there's, you know, a lot of barriers that local government go through in in the search and in the process of, you know, trying to increase funding, increase projects, increase, you know, policies on sustainable mobility and especially cycling. And we argue in this paper that most of that comes from this really long-standing bureaucratic kind of hindrances that have been designed around car use. And again, we, you know, we are not practitioners, we are not on the ground, but this is something that comes from our own research and our own experiences. So, you know, all this existing legislation, all the permitting, all the codes, even like district representation, all these, all these sort of varied governance aspects we argue are really hindering innovation and they're hindering progress towards change and especially when it comes to streets and I think we we say say streets are this really interesting space because they are public space it's it's also a city asset this amazing incredible amount of space that cities have and when we think about it a lot of these streets have been designed a hundred years ago, and they have been coded a hundred years ago. And you know the the these permitting process and the legislations is this really was formulated in a time where uh, where the car was the future. And now there's all these crazy forces that are happening that are really calling into question this basis. You know, not only climate change and health, like what we were talking about before, you know, and coronavirus, I mean, all these very relevant issues, 
that are coming up. But also, like if we think about the shared economy and micromobility, all these innovations that they're all trying to take place on this on a street, you know, on these streets that were not coded for for these innovative and and changing dynamics. So so that's sort of the the premise is that so how do we think about our streets as a place that can adapt and can adapt to to what is going on currently instead of the other way around how can our how can we change our vehicles how can we change our you know economic systems well maybe our streets actually need to really physically adapt and then so to do that to to sort of manage that process that's what what we address as three three principles to addressing that the management behind it so sort of that governance kind of aspect do you want me to keep going i can keep talking a lot <laughs> <laughs> no that's great well the w- one of the things that you said there is is that we're sort of in this state of you, you talk about you know over the past hundred years the you know streets have been designed in a particular way, but when we really take a step back and and think about true human history, streets were always the platform of of interaction and wealth creation and commerce and. It's really been a manifestation of the last 80 to 100 years. I mean, literally 100 years ago, you know, 102 years ago, you know, there, there was the Model T. It didn't look anything like, you know, an Ford excursion or, or something like that that we have today. So, you know, this in and of itself is an aberration in many ways is that the automobile sort of dominated and took over many, many cities, uh, you know, domestically here in the United States, but also internationally. But when you do look at a city that is a historical city, like say in Amsterdam, to, to shoehorn in space for the automobile required a great amount of destruction in and of itself of the streetscape. So it's almost it, it, it's almost as if we're just coming back around, yeah. you know, yeah. back to the future sort of a, of a thing of, you know, reclaiming street space. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But also. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of that is, yeah, true. And what we're what we're trying to achieve now is something we've actually already have. Right. Or are, already have had but i mean this is a totally also different time and within uh, within transport there's just there's so many different actors now there's so many uh, you know different people involved different stakeholders and other relevant issues that are changing the nature of the of the conversation but yeah and then we do see also a lot of really interesting initiatives coming out of um of com- coming out of this like you know the paris 15 minute city you know and I think uh, Portland or maybe Seattle also has a sort of 20 minute city type of idea where, you know, there's this focus on accessibility, um, which is one of the tenets that we talk about in this article that mobility, you know, the efficient movement of, of goods and people, while it's, you know, it can be a valuable way to, to look at how we move, but accessibility is how easily we can reach destinations, how easily we can reach places that are interesting to us, employment, childcare, um, other people, family, you know, education. And these are the things that for an urban environment are, um, are actually, you know, very valuable. So if we were to, you know, to change streets, then one of those kind of more uh, attractive levers is this, uh, is this thinking around accessibility. And that's where I think cycling comes in, in a, in a big way. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and to be clear, what we're talking about when we talk about a 15 minute city, a 20 minute city is to your point is that all of these meaningful destinations are within an easy walking or biking or transit ride versus the, the sort of the North American context of everything was sort of desired of being a 20 minute or less car ride 
you know, being able to, oh yeah, oh, it's no big deal. It's only 15, you know, minutes away. Oh, that's cool. Are, are you walking? Are you biking? No, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm getting in the car. I'm getting on the interstate. I'm driving at 70 miles per hour and going to the grocery store, you know, 15, 20 miles away. <laughs> it's like life at 60 miles per hour versus like life at 15 miles per hour or less. Uh, so it's a different context, and that's what the city of Paris is, is striving for as part of an overarching goal of addressing climate change, addressing air pollution, and Mayor Hildalgo, you know, years ago, five years ago, said, hey, we got a problem. We cannot see the Eiffel Tower through the smog, through the pollution. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's wonderful to see that more and more cities are heading in that direction. So let's talk a little bit about the other paper and your area of study. Because, as you had mentioned earlier, the, the Netherlands is really seen as a wonderful example, a, a wonderful study ground for, for folks. And so folks from North America, uh, folks from all over the world are coming in to learn from the Dutch. Uh, so talk a little bit about the, the, the field of study that you sort of found in terms of exploring uh, the impact of study tours. Yeah. So, I mean, study tours are visits, official visits, fact-finding trips, missions. I mean, there's a bunch of different names that come under this uh, umbrella, but they've been happening for a really long time. I mean, I think I even read from you know, the very, very early 1900s or something where there was an exchange between Sweden and the U.S., I think. So th these, these have been happening for a long time, and it's only been relatively recently that they've been critiqued pretty, uh, pretty harshly and called, you know, called junkets uh, or, you know, free trips on pat taxpayer dollars and or sort of like tourism akin to tourism. But the idea behind these trips is that policymakers and, and other decision makers, technical people, they can see a policy or an idea in its own context. Uh, usually that's been successful, right? And then they can talk to these foreign peers who have, uh, who have realized these ideas into whatever it is, whether it's education or healthcare or sustainable transport. And these visitors then learn from this experience, quote unquote, learn from this experience. And they, they, they take home these lessons and they use them to inform future policies or, or future ideas. So I am very interested in this topic. And I what the interesting part to me about it is that while there are so many study tours going on, there is a very, very small group of people uh, who like me who are interested in them and, and actually trying to study them and, and really unpack what is it about these study tours that is uh, either beneficial or can we, can we sort of unpack what are, you know, what are the mechanisms behind these study tours? And, you know, there, there's so many resources, staff time and money and, and other resources that are going into these types of trips both both for the host and for the visitor it's it's kind of mind-boggling how much how much time and energy these types of trips take so what if we can understand you know what are these uh, key factors involved then uh, then maybe those who who are who are involved with these types of knowledge exchange uh, maybe we can you know do it better or we can uh, really extract those those key components and make them even better than they were before so, um, so yeah, but well, the, the interesting thing is that learning is a really tricky concept to study <laughs> because learning means so many different things to so many different people. Uh, and it's also this very socially constructed process. So, you know, it's our, it's our own interpretation of things. It's our own analysis. It's our own lived experiences. Um, it's translating information to to knowledge. It depends on so many factors. It's really impossible to keep track of them. So for this particular paper, we we tried to make it a bit easier on ourselves. And what I did was I borrowed theory and metrics from business management and a particular type of field in business management called um, transfer of learning. 
And I used a survey that was developed by uh, one of these one of these scholars to measure some of these factors. So what I did was I basically called a study tour a training, and then used the ideas behind what uh, or used the metrics behind a training in order to in order to tease out what really influences the the transfer of the learning from that training back to to wider circles within uh, within the organization or within the network that they that these individuals work. And it's, I mean, it's also, it's very difficult, right? I mean, it's, you know, people working on transportation, they're not necessarily working within an organization. They're, uh, it's a very much of a network of, of people who are working together. So we're taking some leaps here, but the other thing is, is that no one else is doing this. So why not? That was the other approach to it is that let's just explore, let's explore how to measure learning. And one way to do it is this way. So yeah, so what affected knowledge transfer the most? Well, there were uh, there were a couple different things. So one thing that was surprising to me was that we found in our sample, so we we surveyed uh, um, 109 people responded to our survey. This was only U.S. professionals, so we excluded students. So U.S. professionals, and it was a range of people who worked for for municipalities, including you know technical engineers to policymakers to advocates and a small portion of academics. But a surprising thing was that actually the duration of the study tour had no impact on the, on the learning transfer outcome. So, and I, I had totally thought that, okay, the longer you stay, the more you learn, right? <laughs> but, and the more you learn, the more you, the more potentially you have to transfer that, that, in, that learning. But according to this survey, yeah, we, I mean, we could replicate it again and see if the same thing comes out next time. But I thought that was uh, I thought that was interesting. Another interesting one was that it also didn't matter how well you knew the people you were on the study tour with. So that was also interesting. I thought that if you that maybe if, you know, people really knew each other really well, that there would be more potential to to transfer learning to uh, to the workplace and, and the networks and that uh, we didn't really see that conclusion. The main conclusions that we did find or the main results was that individual learning outcomes was so strong and positive individual learning outcomes very much affected learn, uh, knowledge transfer. So for example, some people had some pretty major behavior changes that they admitted. And what we found is that a lot of these behavior changes were related to the experience of riding a bike, but also to very new and con, um, um, abstract ideas. Um, and that was also really interesting. People didn't say things like, I learned how to measure, you know, I learned how to build a bicycle path like that's, or, or, or anything really about design and, and the, the, the technology or the technical component of it was, was really not prominent. What was prominent was, ex, you know, the experience of riding a bike, the social experience, people saying that they really enjoyed time with their colleagues and, and other things that are, that are just much more, much more conceptual. Here, I copied and pasted just one uh, um, example. So one person in the survey said, I can now better articulate why having mobility options is vital for our city. That quote, um, and this was just a written, you know, a written survey, open, uh, open response. That quote, even though it's just one line, I mean, it, it, it shows you how that this, this is a really conceptual thing that's going on. It's not, you know, it, it, it this outcome is not like I learned the width of the bike path, you know, it's much different. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that the technical aspect of it and the width of the bike path and the the cohesion of the network and all of these other things that make the Dutch system and the Dutch uh, built environment so special is that that foundation. It just kind of it, it it's there. It allowed that platform for somebody to experience it and then be able to reflect back to you, hey, I can now better articulate this. I now have this knowledge, you know, because I've experienced it. it it's not about the specific protected intersection design, although that facilitated it. <laughs> yeah, it might have. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, you, 
on in other research where I've partaken in in these study tours and observed, you know, that's that's where these a lot of these photos come from. You know, you see that the, you see all the participants like taking photos of the intersection and taking photos of the of, of the bike paths. But actually, that's not according to this study. That's not what they actually do learn about. <laughs> It's more, it's more, it's, it, it's more like the gaggle of them experiencing it together and then yeah. reflecting about it at night, you know, yeah. and, and yes. Yeah. So that was the next one. Um, the next really main characteristic that affected um, knowledge transfer was, uh, was the communicative part. So actually speaking with colleagues in a, in a, you know, in a, some sort of session, I believe. I mean, from the survey, I, I don't really, we don't really know the specifics, but but I do know that that people said that they they did, you know, have discussions uh, and dialogue, and this sort of inward group reflection process did affect knowledge transfer. So we don't know the the shape or form that comes in, and that's sort of what I'm unpacking in in a next paper is about this sort of inward group reflection process on something like a study tour. But yeah, so we do know that in some shape or form, uh, a sort of dialogue with with colleagues uh, affects learning transfer. And then the other um, characteristic that's, that's also worth mentioning, because, you know, people can go into the paper and read all the details, but the other one worth mentioning is the role of, of leadership involved. From the survey, we were able to show that those who went on a study tour with leadership. So the the respondent was not uh, particularly the leader, him or herself, but they were with someone um, on a study tour who was either, you know, elected official or a senior executive management. That also contributed to more knowledge transfer, having that presence of leadership. And then the last one that uh, is also worth mentioning is the knowledge integration activity. So actually having a conscious effort after the the study tour to have another group reflection and some sort of it varied from uh, individual to individual on the survey but you know some sort of process to reflect on the experience whether with it's with those same colleagues or with colleagues who didn't go or with the wider network we still don't know a lot about that that sort of knowledge integration activity but we do know that was essential yeah, yeah, I would have to say that I'm not at all surprised that that's a, a critical aspect of it. Any final points that uh, you'd like to talk about uh, that we haven't yet addressed? Um, yeah, I mean, I think also one of the things I talked about in this last paper was the effective and emotive part of, of study tours. And it's a, you know, it is a small portion, but this positive like group dynamic was also a very, very much a component of the study tour. So, you know, this, this positive group dynamic resulted in a lot of the interviewees talking about, you know, these, these aha moments. And I, you know, I think that, that, the positive affect or, you know, positive emotions, plus this sort of group dynamic may also contribute to sort of maybe a, a creativity or something. And there, there is something there that I think could be further explored that I wasn't able to, you know, really unpack in this, in this paper based on this, this set of data that I had. But I thought that was a, an interesting component because so many of the interviewees r- talked about how much, it was, you know, fun. So the role of fun, I think, is something that, I mean, yeah, it's hard because this is, you know, these are serious, these are serious learning experiences, right? And, and they're supposed to be serious, right? Yeah, they they are um, in one way, uh, using their time as uh, municipal staff workers, you know, this is a serious job they have and climate change and obesity and all these other factors are very serious problems. At the same time, the ability to get out of the office and and talk with colleagues who are working on this problem, at, you know, there's not a lot of time for talking about their families, about their hopes and futures, about, you know, where their family is from and all these things. And I think I think people find joy in 
you know, in really sharing these types of experiences. And, and we do know some, there's some really interesting research about traveling abroad and that traveling itself is something that is, you know, mind opening, right? That you, there was a really interesting paper that showed that college students, particularly their sense of morals decrease when they travel but it also resulted in uh, in a mind opening process that that they were you know they were more exposed to uh, to new ideas and new things and uh, i definitely saw that in this in this data uh, set from these interviews that almost every single person said that they were their mind was really open that they saw new things that they never that they never thought they would ever see they did things that they never thought they would do like ride a bicycle so, you know, <laughs> I think that that's part of this, uh, that's part of this experience is sort of opening people's minds and, and allowing for sort of creative, positive memories. And when it's done socially, there may be some uh, benefits there as well later on, you know, with this group of people. Yeah. As an example from a study tour from several years ago, Roshan Austin from South Memphis, Tennessee, uh, was on a, a study tour, you know, way back when. And it's profoundly changed her life. You know, it, it's she had to learn how to ride a bike before she could even go to that study tour. And in my podcast interview with her, you know, she talked about how, you know, how life changing that was. And then just last week, she sent me a note saying, you know, hey, I'm even getting another new bike because <laughs> it's just, it's part of, you know, who she is now. And so it, it's it, the, that fun factor as well as that life changing uh, opportunity is, is so profound. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of education theorists have also said that some of the greatest education theorists have said that positive emotions, they store in our long term memory. So if you experience positive emotions during a, a learning activity, that not only most often do you have better outcomes on that learning activity, that's what they showed with, you know, with school age children, that you also have have fond memories of that experience. So I think that there that that could also be something to explore with with sort of this area of research, especially around cycling. And I mean, the other the other area that I would find really interesting is comparing us, you know, some uh, a study tour on cycling with a study tour on congestion charging, for example. I mean, you know, how do you experience congestion charging in the same way that you experience, you know, cycling policy? That's a very, very different experience, but maybe it's not even about the policy at all. You know, <laughs> maybe it's really about getting this group of individuals together. But maybe bike riding is something that can be incorporated into other transport or non-transport policies. Maybe it's really just this, this group bonding. I mean, you know, the group retreat, the, the corporate retreat, you know, that, 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 that sort of um, activity has been long lived, you know, all right. these, uh, all a lot of top corporate firms have these, these employee retreats, a lot of startup innovation have retreats where they do these creative learning exercises, where they build bonds, they build trust, they build relationships. And for some reason in the public sector, that's not okay. Yeah, that's, that's so sad. Well, and, and I think the data is starting to to speak for itself, because we are seeing, um, at least in North America and some of the cities that I've been profiling over the years as part of the Active Towns Initiative, a common thread, uh, you know, that continues to, to pop up is that, yeah, you know, a decade ago, I was on a study tour and it, it helped profoundly change, you know, how we view things and how we do things now on the ground. And so it's, it's certainly not a scientific study, but you know, there's that empirical evidence that you know, these things have a good return on investment, and, and that's incredibly important. So our last question for the, this, uh, this podcast episode is, for, for anyone who's listening to this and is like inspired by what we've been talking about today across the wide variety of, of topics, but they want to make a difference. They want to somehow make their community better, more livable. 
What advice would you have for them? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, in, in all my work, you know, the bicycle is is not like the is not the end goal. It's just a means to get to another goal, you know. So that is definitely something to consider if that you know if you, if you're sort of this uh, a bicycle advocate or um, activist. I mean, policymakers can be really reticent to, you know, focus on one particular mode or one particular lifestyle. You know, they're interested in what their constituents want, right? So, or what what the the people from their district want. And so in that way, you know, community organizing uh, around what the community wants. And usually the bicycle is one way to attain those community goals. Yeah, and I also don't want to sort of toss aside like the bicycle itself because I I do think it can be a very powerful means. But the fact is that, you know, in this time, especially in such a a car-dominated society that America is, I mean, people really have a hard time with change. And they also have a hard time imagining what a different life would look like or feel like. So in that way, you know, attributing others, other city goals and, and also getting uh, a lot more input from, from other, other residents, really meaningful. It's really having these conversations, sometimes hard conversations, but getting that consensus that, you know, that, that we want something different. We may not know what that is, but it's different than what it is right now. <laughs> and so then, you know, experimenting. So that would be sort of the answer from maybe like the community activist advocate side. From the city side, you know, there are so many incredible initiatives going on right now with all the tactical changes and, and slow streets initiatives. I think my my big question to a lot of those a lot of those cities and people who are working on them is how is the city learning from that experience? And this actually comes out of a of a study that I that I recently did with uh, with uh, with actually with Kevin, uh, and it's under review right now. And um, and what we found from a lot of these initiatives is that you know the evaluative component of these of the slow streets you know is is not really there. There's not a lot of evaluation going on and. And how are how how are we going to learn from these experiments? There's such there's such a great amount of momentum. Can this trigger a transition? And so I think that would be you know one of my my main questions back to cities is like let's really take hold of this of this experiment and have confidence in residents that it is a pathway forward. Yeah, and then I think from the policy angle, I don't know. I'm out of ideas. <laughs> no, those were great. And actually, I see a, a, an interesting connection, uh, you know, between the two trains of thought there in that our current situation where streets are being viewed in, in a different way is, you know, to our advantage of trying to comprehend what could be. And it really isn't about the bicycle. It's not about, you know, being you know, it's, it's more along the lines of, you know, hey, streets are for people and, and this is being reinforced by, you know, a, a, a terrible pandemic that has caused such loss of life, economic devastation, and at the same time is sort of woken us up as societies, you know, around the world to how our public spaces can be better envisioned. And it's an opportunity for us to, to your point of having some of those difficult conversations that, that we need to have. So uh, I think it's brilliant. That's a, a wonderful bit of advice on both, uh, both points. So, yeah, yeah, you know, if you look at the cities that are really trying to push hard and who have sort of historically pushed hard on issues of sustainability and, and cycling and active transport, you know, they've done things like they've really gathered a consensus around, you know, a vision of sustainability. And to have that sort of agreed upon basis of understanding is something that has helped these cities move forward. 
And, you know, and the other aspect of that, a lot of these cities that are making progress, they also have a very like networked approach. So they use uh, a lot of different types of, of network organizations of the business community of groups and community based organizations uh, to leverage that influence. And they not only listen to to the people, their their residents, but, you know, really gather data on what their perspectives are. Uh, because if we look at you know the the average population in in many urban areas, a majority are for uh, more active transportation, and so you know as policymakers it's hard you know and and as as municipal uh, transport planners it's hard to you know see the forest with the trees or whatever that that uh, phrase is but you know it's hard to really hone in on uh, on the positives but. There is a big, there is a large group of people who are interested but concerned, right? They're they're really interested in active uh, mobility. They're interested in taking the bus and walking and cycling, but they have concerns. So how do we really leverage that population to move forward and, and challenge these values and norms that have been in uh, in American uh, culture for a really long time? And that's 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 hard. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, Meredith. Thank you so very much. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure catching up with you here today and uh, carry on, continue the great work. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to this episode. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this in-depth discussion with Meredith Glazer from the University of Amsterdam's Urban Cycling Institute. Please be sure to access her articles in the show notes. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggested topics or guests, questions, or if you happen to have any leads on potential podcast sponsors. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. And if I may ask for one final favor, please consider making a financial contribution to Active Towns so I can keep bringing you this content. I've made doing so super easy and I do have some wonderful thank you gifts. Just go to activetowns, again, that's plural, .org and click on the blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for episode number 47. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.